Hey guys, welcome to episode 3 of Be Particular Out There. I'm your host, Dustin M. Thomas. Thanksgiving is this week, so we have something special for you. A two-part series with my great friend Saskia Vogel. She will be reading from her essay, Down the King's Trail, which appears in the latest issue of Elsewhere. Saskia is a Los Angeles native and current Berlin expat. She's an amazing writer with an even more amazing background of experience. But we'll get into all that in part two, where we palaver more about the treacherous King's Trail, the expatriate scene in Berlin, and touch upon the sex dens of Los Angeles. So be sure to check it out after you listen to this episode first. Without further ado, here's Saskia Vogel reading her essay, Down the King's Trail. We were traversing an Arctic landscape in the midst of thaw. Mountains all around us, a barren distance. 22 kilometers to cover, and six hours in, we had done but 12. Our bodies algid, our minds frozen still. Water rivers surged beneath melting snow and ice. We only knew where they were when our snowshoes broke through the ice that had had enough of being ice and was getting ready to flow. Along the eastern side of this gently rolling path in the highlands ran the silver sliver of Alasjaura, a half-frozen lake ensconced by meters-deep snow and shore ice that had started to break free and float away. Black modeled the white. Black meant spongy, wet earth or knee-deep, swampy pools. I would come to think of these dark islands as holy. It was the only ground sure to hold. The four of us, my husband and our two old friends, kept our slow, steady pace. Soundless white birds wearing black masks hovered in the white sky. It had been hours since we had seen a lemming. Our simple delight in this week-long trek had slipped away hours ago. We were in the grip of the land. Keeping an eye on my husband, walking confidently along a hundred feet ahead, I took a step. But my foot didn't land. It sunk. I broke through the snow, through the ice, down into icy water, down to my chest, sinking for what seemed like forever, waiting for an icy vice to grip my wool-covered neck, waiting for the water to swallow me whole. My feet reached the bottom, and I was relieved to find that I was only chest deep. Johnny and Adela stood behind me on the snow, and I was sure this moment would be the end of at least one of us. I was certain I would either die of hypothermia here or further along the trail. I I didn't know what to do. I wiggled my toes. They were dry, a wash of relief. And the rest of my body? Dry. Dry and alive. I flung myself onto the snow in the only way that made sense. Like a snow angel my arms and legs pulling me forward to the inner chant of increase your surface area. I slid over the snow until I felt safe to stand. The second time I used this technique, later that day, we laughed, a nervous, weasel-like laughter that kept us from asking, what have we done? This far along, we'd left the question of turning back behind. Locals would later tell us that we were mad to attempt this part of the trail at this time of year, and the only advice the mountain guides had given us was, you'll be fine with snowshoes. (laughs) 
Our 100-kilometer journey down the King's Trail began on the 14th of June in Abisko, a Swedish village, population 85, 250 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. It sits on the southern shore of the vast, deep Tunatresk Lake, a nameless Caledonian mountain range, some refer to it as the Scandies, runs along its northern shore at the border of Norway and Sweden. In the summer, the midnight sun only ever skims the peaks of these mountains. For a few minutes, it becomes a flaming ship sailing across a sea of cobalt peaks before it finds its place in the open sky again. Across a motorway, next to the parking lot behind the train station, a tiny wooden hut wallpapered with maps and notes on nature marks the entrance to the northernmost trailhead. The King's Trail opened in the early 1900s with the aim of bringing people closer to the majesty of the glaciers at Tarfala, the view from the top of Kebnekaise, Sweden's highest mountain, the hunting grounds of sea eagles and grazing grounds for reindeer, still managed by the Sami, the indigenous people of Lapland. The King's Trail makes a gift of the wilderness to anyone who wishes to explore the land. On the trail, duckboards, some rotten, some whole, help you traverse uneven or boggy ground for long stretches. The trails for winter and summer are clearly marked. Along the trail, a mountain hut is never more than a day's hike away, 9 to 22 kilometers. And roughly every other one has a shop where you can buy low-alcohol beer, all manner of camping food, souvenir spoons, and merino wool base layers. Every travel guide, blog, and internet forum says you do not need to bring a tent. Reluctantly, we left ours at home. The trail is designed so inexperienced hikers can travel light, increasing their ability to enjoy nature's splendor. But nobody mentions nature as a unified force. In my urban everyday, I think the idea of the wilderness has kept me sane. The wilderness is, to borrow from the the American environmentalist Wallace Stegner's Wilderness Letter from 1960, part of my geography of hope. Stegner writes that the wilderness is the challenge against which our character as a people was formed, and that it provides a natural counterweight to man-made imbalances. Without this counterweight, Stegner warns, we are committed wholly, without chance for even momentary reflection and rest, to a headlong drive into our technological termite life. Without the wilderness, or simply the awareness that wild spaces exist, he believed that we can never be free of our own noise. And the four of us trekking through Swedish Lapland last summer desperately wanted to be free of our own noise. Free from wondering if Jon Snow will rise from the grave in the next season of Game of Thrones. Free from worries that a work project will be delivered on time, on budget, and will turn out well, and that more work will come along. The King's Trail runs for roughly 440 kilometers through one of Europe's last remaining wildernesses. But as I plotted our itinerary, little about it seemed truly wild. Our itinerary seemed so civilized. We simply had to undo the bow tied around the gift of the wilderness, and it would be ours to enjoy. I thought of the artist Ulafur Eliasson's investigations into nature and culture, his motion-activated air compressors that whip up sandstorms in museums, or his tapestry of living moss mounted on a gallery wall. Works suggesting that nature as we know it is a construction, that there is no longer such a thing as nature with a capital N, untouched and archetypal. I wonder to what extent Eliasson was right. The first day of our trek did feel civilized. 
We followed the Abiscoyoka River as it curved southwest through a limestone canyon. The stiff soles of our hiking boots seesawed over the stones, limestone, amphibolite, granite, shards of glittering mica schist. Spring had not quite sprung and the sap-green leaves of the dwarf birch trees were only beginning to unfurl. There were few wildflowers and none of the berries that would grow sweet and plump over the next weeks. We saw no reindeer, many lemmings. The sun was bright and for the most part, walking made it warm enough to take off our long-sleeved layers. After 15 kilometers, we reached the Abiscoyaure cabins, checked in with the host, tossed our packs on the floor by our bunks, chopped wood, replenished the camps and our water supply, and inquired about the trail ahead. Oh, the conditions are bad, that's for sure, said a real estate agent who was feeling guilty for having left his wife at home. He'd heard from the host, who'd heard from a couple, who'd spoken to a hiker, who'd attempted the trail that day. From the conversations we'd had with the mountain guides and the guests at the Abisco Lodge, we had the sense that some who'd turned back weren't quite up for a challenge, so we wanted to know more about this hiker and his gear. Did he have snowshoes? No one could tell us any more information about him, and no one knew where we could find him. He was somewhere in this white birch forest, they thought. Oh, but you have snowshoes, the real estate agent said, as did the cabin host, who we asked later. You should be fine. We ate the first of our camping meals on dry, warm ground under a constant sun. On the trail, each of us would fall into water at some point. Dry was a relative concept. After I'd fallen in the lake, the only thing that mattered for the rest of what would be a 12-hour hike was warm, safe, and onward. Our minds were as helpless as mammoth, knee-deep in tar pits, and we agreed that if we so much as thought of drinking, or eating, or comfort, we would take care of the urge immediately. Wildness had begun to writhe inside us all, a wildness in the eye, a wildness in the necessity to proceed, certain that we would lose more than we would gain by turning back, wild with peril and cold. I looked at the snow and the yaura, the still, swampy pools, and felt my thirst rise. Refilling my water bladder, which was running low, seemed like an impossible task. How long ago was it that I had stood on the bank of the Abiscoyoka River? I had watched the water flow, marveling at the fact that as long as the water was moving, you could dip your cup in and drink. I'd never known water that clean, or abundant. Water was moving everywhere, and just because I could, I dipped cup after cup in. And now all the water was frozen, or still. The Yaura was too far to wander to, and there was no telling where its banks were. The land was beginning to feel hostile. There was no reason in us being there. On a hill sheltering us from the wind that had been whipping us for hours, Johnny stopped to tend to a blister. He pulled off his boot, tipped it over, and bloody water gushed to the ground. We kept going. My husband declared that his thighs had stopped working and had started to propel himself, shoulders first, flinging his body forward like Frankenstein's monster, keening and growling as he walked on. We kept going. Adela said she felt cold. We stopped and stared at each other dumbly. It took us far too long to remember that each of us had emergency layers. 
I remember the relief I felt when the color flooded back to her cheeks after she put on Johnny's down jacket, which was a bright orange color the label called Danger. As we walked, I began to make bargains with myself, telling myself that I can do anything once and I will never, never have to do this again. As we walked, I waxed and waned between angry, elated, and tearful. We were all going to die and it would be my fault. I loved each of these people so much, I hated them. My husband touched me on the shoulder and asked me if I was okay. I felt so much love for him at that moment, but I could only blubber like an insolent child. I just wanted to go for a walk. I didn't want any snow. I didn't ask for snow. And we laughed between my hiccups and tears. All my thoughts were nonsense, swirling around in a soup of fear and exhaustion. Exhaustion. When we finally arrived at the cabins, we agreed to never misuse that word again. We'd had the cluster of cabins in sight for kilometers, and they never seemed to come any closer. For a time, we weren't sure if the brown structures were buildings or boulders, the barren distance, the red X's marking the trail, the monotonous, endless landscape. It was a kind of hell worming through my mind. There is no way out. When we approached the caretaker's cabin, the door flung open and a cheery gray-haired woman asked, would you like a hot drink? The question stilled the wildness that had kept us moving along. We had arrived. We spilled into her cabin, our packs, our jackets, our boots forming puddles on her floor. As soon as we sat at her table, she placed mugs of syrupy lingonberry tea in front of us. Oh, I'm glad you made it, she said. She pointed to her binoculars. I've been keeping an eye on you for hours. Giddily, we cooked a vat of pasta and cans of chili. We opened bags of crisps and we ate it all. None of us slept very long, but I slept the longest. And when I woke, I stood at the window of the bunk room and stared into the landscape. I no longer saw the landscape. I saw treachery. The window overlooked the silvery blue, half-frozen lake and a Sami summer village. There was nothing for the reindeer to eat, so they had not yet made, made their way up here, and so the Sami too had not yet followed. The holy, black islands had been few and far between, and I had come to hate them too. The way the bare bushes grabbed at our feet, the sharpness of the stones, and the squish of moss. I saw surfaces that could not be trusted, concealed ice lakes, verglass, a sudden ravine carved by surging meltwater rivers, which we crossed by jumping off a small cliff of snow, down onto a makeshift bridge, and climbing up a snow wall with 20 kilos each on our backs. It seemed impossible now. Ahead of us were at least two more days of similar conditions, or we could veer off the trail and march for 50-some kilometers down a valley we heard was green and filled with moose and mosquitoes. But there was only one emergency shelter along the way, so we'd have to stock up on provisions here and hope it wouldn't rain or storm or that we'd be caught in a summer blizzard. I wasn't sure I could endure the former, and the latter seemed foolish without a tent. I felt dizzy and weak, bereft because of it, and my incapability to meet these challenges. No matter how civilized we imagined the trail to be, we'd always been at the whim of earth, wind, and sky. When we set out on this adventure, I'm not sure we expected nature to come. At home, we bathed in lamplight and jogged down city streets. We moved through cycles of excess and lack, but each of us knew how to thrive in a city surrounded by shelves of food and roofs and paved streets. 
We were experts at paying bills, finding deals, and following directions on digital maps. We had burrowed too deep into our technological termite lives. All of the things that were essential to our everyday survival meant nothing here, where nature rolled through her seasons, uninfluenced by us and our tiny plans. If we wanted to be a true adventure team, we'd have to bring tents next time. We'd have to be equipped to endure. We'd have to remember that the wilderness is a challenge we must always be prepared to meet. I shoulder the blame for what happened next, our urban decision. We chartered a helicopter back to Abisko. It cost exactly as much as our snowshoe rental, and it was like dying in a video game. In 15 minutes, our journey had been reset. We made our way south and picked up the trail to Kebnekaise. There the dwarf birches were bright with wide leaves, flowers were blooming, and great raft spiders crawled along the path. And when we arrived in the mountains, the slopes were full of reindeer feeding. She just wanted to go for a walk. It's a hell of a walk. Thank you guys for listening in to part one of Saskia's two-parter. Before you go and listen to part two, be sure you check out Saskia on Twitter at Saskia Vogel or over at her website, saskiavogel.com. Down the King's Trail is published in the latest issue of Elsewhere, so go and check that out. Give her some props, elsewhere-journal.com. Saskia also has another essay entitled The Mango King. It's up for the world to see by the fine people over at Catapult. Check out The Mango King while you're out surfing around by going to catapult.co. For us, you can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn at B underscore particular, or by visiting our site, BeParticularOutThere.com. Subscribe to the show at iTunes or wherever you dig listening to podcasts. We're taking your reviews also, so please take a few moments and let us know what you think. It'll help us out tremendously. Want to do it the old-fashioned way? Send us a message at letters at BeParticularOutThere.com. We also just started a Facebook for you old-school cats, so we hope to see you there too. Thanks for listening in. Don't forget to check out part two of Saskia Vogel. See you soon.